Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. We've been uh, uh, traveling together through the last, like, nine months through the book of Mark. And we took about five weeks off for uh, Christmas and Advent season. And we're going to jump back into the book of Mark. And we're kind of in the last little uh, quarter of the book or so. And it's a very uh, interesting journey. What's fascinating about being an interim pastor, an interim, interim uh, preaching pastor, is that um, I get to know you on Sunday mornings a little bit, see who your family are, see how things, people come and go, and get to know you a little bit. You know really nothing about me except the stories I tell about myself or about my family. And, and so you get to know my family by what I, what I tell you, all right? My home, you, you don't, uh, my wife Laura's been here a few times, you, you, you see her, maybe introduce her. You don't know my kids at all. Uh, they're both grown and married. Jake. All right, so Jake is a native Hawaiian Islander, and currently Jake and Jenna live on the island of Kauai. Uh, that's where he's from, up in Buena Vista. They were both working at the camp. That's where they met and fell in love. So I first knew Jake as a ranch hand, basically, a, a counselor, a camper up there. And as a mountain is that he just loves to be on any kind of board. And where he's from, it's a surfboard or a boogie board. Here it was a snowboard. And so what's been interesting is to get to know him in his, in his native habitat, so to speak. So he, he lives, he's born and raised in Kauai. That's currently where they live. Uh, and they'll probably be back here sometime in, in the year 2000. Um, a little bit over a year ago, we were there about three weeks in Kauai, just to experience Kauai in a way we never had before. We had been one other time back in 1988. Uh, that, that was the last time we had been in Hawaii. We were on Kauai, and actually we went because I won a trip uh, to Kauai in a three-point shooting contest at a Nuggets game. Now, that was pretty sweet. So, so we won a trip to Hawaii, we chose to go to Kauai, stayed there a while, and did the tourist things, right? This was beautiful, it was amazing, and a great experience. But when we went back uh, last year for an extended time, we were able to see the island in a completely different way, because we were there with a native. We were there with somebody who was born and raised there that knew the ins and outs, knew the history, knew the places to go that nobody else would go. And we got to experience Jake in this whole different world that was completely different. And Hawaii, you know, if, if you haven't been there, it's really different than Colorado. I mean, you know, it doesn't, it's never like this. There's no snow, right? No, no biting wind at times. I mean, we have amazing sunshine, our own beautiful place. You know, we live here for a reason, but it's very different. And that's not my culture, right? We, we visited there. And then I started thinking, what's, what's the exact real opposite of Kauai? And I think it's something, well, Gary would probably know about this. It's like the Arctic tundra. That would be the exact opposite of a tropical island, right? If we're talking an Arctic tundra, we're talking about places where maybe there are polar bears or, or seals, and there's the, uh, when, when, it's, when it's possible to see plant life and vegetation in certain times of year, it's just, it's very sturdy, but it's really small, right? And it's, it's, it's something, it snows a lot. During the, the winter, it's dark almost. 24 hours. During the summer, it's light almost 24 hours. It's, it's very different than a tropical island. Now imagine if you were somebody who had only known an Arctic tundra. That, that's all you knew. And somebody came and tried to tell you about what Kauai was like. How, how would you go about explaining that? Well, it's really, it's really warm. We, we, we don't wear our shoes every day. Right, the sun just kind of bathes you. It can get hot. Sometimes the, the trade winds don't blow, and so it's stifling. But then when they blow, it's incredibly refreshing. And there are huge waves and beautiful green mountains. There's lush vegetation. You could go on hikes, and there's all kinds of fruit you could pick right then. It's amazing. You understand? No. I, I don't get it. So, so maybe the best way that you could understand or help them understand is to tell people what it's not. Well, there, well there's not snow. 
you, you don't wear boots. There's not this, this skin-breaking wind that goes through with the cold that threatens to just rip your body apart. That, you don't have that. Does that make sense? It's like, yeah, but what is it? You, you really can't explain that kind of difference. It's completely outside your realm of understanding and experience. We're going to experience a passage of Scripture today that's, that's kind of like that. And, and, and one of the things that's interesting when you're working through a book of the Bible is that you just take the next passage as it comes. And some of those are ones you go, I'm excited about this one. I mean, next week passage is, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I can grab onto that one. That's awesome. We can all say, I have a sense of what that is. Those are exciting, great things to preach about. But, but then there are passages like today. Let's read it. All right? It starts in um, Mark chapter 12. It starts in verse 18. It says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have, four cho- and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dying, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? And everybody said, huh? Why is this in here? What, what possible reason could, could we have this included in the book of Mark? What, what, and it's, it's also in, in Matthew and Luke. What, what, why, why is that there? What, what do we do with that? That's just, that's just weird. Let's skip to next week. Right? That, that, that makes a little more sense. But we sit there and we just go, I don't know what to do with this. But as been our, our case, we, we, we get to the end of a passage like this and we say, huh? Which is really a way of saying, well, so What? And as we've learned through this, this sequence in the book of Mark, is that really what we want to get to in each scripture passage is ask the question, so what? Ask the question, huh? And then we hope we get to a place where it's a really good so what answer that brings implications into our lives today. So, so we need to try to enter back into this passage and then say, how do, we, how do we move it into our world? And we first have to refresh our memories a little bit about what's been going on in the book of Mark in the last little bit, the last few weeks that we spent in the book of Mark. And there, basically we were experiencing this sequence leading up to Jesus' final days in, in Jerusalem before he was crucified. We've had these uh, many people coming, many different leaders in the community coming and asking him questions with the intention of trapping him. Right? They, were, they were opposed to what he was trying to do and say and teach and be, and, and they were always out to get him. Right, So there had been this sequence of people coming and asking questions. And uh, one of them happened just a few weeks prior in, in the book of Mark uh, where he had gone to the temple. And we had this famous scene of him turning over the money changers' tables and, and, and getting rid of the, the sacrificial system. Right, He was turning that over. And it wasn't so much, we discovered, about trying to reform or cleanse the temple. It was basically to say that old way of system, that old system of thinking is gone. I am taking its place. Forgiveness now comes through me and, and reconciling people to life and restoring people to society and, and life is, is through me, not through the temple anymore. And some of the religious leaders said, well, who said you could do that? 
who gave you the authority to do that? And, and he said, well, let me ask you a question. And it was a question they couldn't answer. And so he said, since you can't answer my question, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do this. And then, and then he went on and, and told him a parable about these wicked landowners who kept abusing the, the prophets, the messengers from the one who owned the land, until eventually they, they killed them and killed the son. And, and he basically says, you're just like those wicked landowners. You have not followed your responsibility to do the things that God asked you to do. And so he kept putting them in their place. And then, then they came to him, these actually two very rival groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. We've, the Pharisees were ones that we said were very, very sincere about what it meant to follow God and to be faithful to his word. And the Herodians were ones in the, in the Jewish community that were on the side of, of Herod, of the Roman Empire, thinking that's the best way to be successful in life. Right? So the two of those very different groups came and tried to trap Jesus again with a political question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And they thought they could trap him in that. If by giving either answer, yes or no, they, they could get him. Because somebody would be upset with him. But he turned the tables on him and says, give to Caesar what Caesar gives to God, God's. And the, the implication being that this coin that you carry that has Caesar's image on it, this is, this is all he has, this is his idol, his image is on it, so pay him his tax. If you benefit from the community in any way, from the water system, from the security, then, then pay your tax. But you owe to God what bears his image, and, and you are made in the image of God, so you owe God everything. And so once again, they, they couldn't trap him in their question. And so it brings us to this group today, and to really process and understand this interaction, we have to know something about these guys, the Sadducees. All right, so the Sadducees were part of the religious leadership. They were probably responsible for overall kind of temple management. They were kind of more aristocratic. They were people that had some wealth and status. And what's unique about the Sadducees is, is that they did not believe in a resurrection. And what's interesting is we don't really know a lot about the Sadducees. There are no books you can buy and says, here's what the Sadducees believed, because they, they didn't exist for very long. We know more about what they believed by what their opponents said. And so through study, we understand they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. And when it came to the five books... So these Sadducees came to Jesus. It was their turn. And they're going to ask him really a theological question. We've seen all kinds of other questions asked. And they said, teacher, Moses said, and so once again, from those first five books that we believe are true and the word of God, Moses, the law of Moses, he said, and he goes into this situation that if a man dies and he's been married but they have no children, then his brother is enabled to marry his wife and so that they could have children. And what was the purpose behind that? It was called a leverite marriage, uh, meaning a, a brother marriage, a kinsman marriage. Because if we understand, if you don't believe in resurrection, and as they didn't, they, they believed that life carried on. Your way of living throughout eternity was through family. Right? So the more children you have, the, the greater your impact is throughout time. And also, family was a very practical thing. Right? This is where uh, your economic well-being, and we've talked about this before, the, the notion of marriage, the notion of, notion of family, of having children, that was all about having progeny, having cheap labor. If you own a farm and you own a business, the best way to grow that business is to have more people that can work for you because they're family. And so if there's a childless couple and the man dies before the wife has a child, then there was an allowance in the law to say, well, now that man's brother, if he has one, can marry the wife and they can have children. Why? That keeps everything in the family. 
that cares for the woman as well, but it also provides that whatever economic stability we have, whatever finances we have, what inheritance we have, it doesn't go away. It stays with the family. And so basically they're taking what is written as a, as a, a law for a purpose and taking it to kind of an absurd extreme, Right? And they say, so this basically, this scenario, the, the man dies, uh, he leaves a widow, they have no children, so the, a brother can marry the wife. But this happens seven times, right? And so now she's been married seven times and she dies, no children. And so they're basically saying, at the resurrection, which we don't believe in, whose wife will she be since she was married to all seven? They're, they're trying to play a game, right? A gotcha game. Build up this scenario. So tell me, whose wife shall we be? We, we just asked you an amazing question. What are you going to do with that? And Jesus, once again, turns the tables. And he kind of just hits them between the eyes. It says, you're asking the wrong question. Or he's saying, you're asking that question is because you don't understand Scripture or because you don't believe in the power of God. Wow. Those are our choices? And then he goes on to explain what the deal is. He says, when the dead rise... They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And we go, huh? We're not angels. What's Jesus talking about? We don't believe we become angels, although throughout human history, people wrestle with what happens when we die. And there are people, you'll see it written, you'll see it in poems, that people think when somebody dies, like, well, they, were, they used to be an angel, and now they've lived among us, now they're an angel again. Or they're the lost one, the loved one we lost is like an angel looking down on us. We have these views where people think that nothing happens when you die, you just die. Others think we have this kind of indestructible soul that just kind of disappears and does what it wants. Others um, believe in reincarnation. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of views about what happens if we die, and the, and the Sadducees live in that world. What happens? And first of all, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. So Jesus is giving them an explanation that uses both. It's like at the resurrection... Marriage doesn't matter. We won't marry or be given in marriage. It'll be like the angels. And so we ask ourselves, in what way is he talking about that? Because we know we were created differently. We were created in the image of God, and angels were a different category of being. So, so from this context, we say, how are we going to be like angels? Well, angels have no need to procreate. Angels' whole life exists around a relationship with God. Your scenario says the resurrection is something very much like the life we know. And there's marriage in the life we know. And there are, there are seven husbands to this one wife, so who, who, whose husband will be hers in resurrection that we don't believe in? He's not literally saying we become like angels when we die. He's saying there, there are things about angels there are things about this life that just don't matter in this place that you don't understand. And so you're asking the wrong question. You're, you're misunderstanding what life to be. In other words, the, the life to come, the resurrection life, is beyond your comprehension, beyond your imagination. But you're all caught up in things like, well, well who would be married to whom? What's interesting is Jesus then doesn't go into, he never really answers their question. But he doesn't go into details about what will this resurrection life look like. He, he doesn't do that. Why? Because we could never understand it. The Arctic tundra, and he's trying to tell us what the tropical plush island life is like. We, it is beyond our ability to understand. And so he just gives one indicator of what it's not. It's not about 
appropriation. It's not about economic stability. It's not about thinking that by having children, we're going to carry on our name and that's how we live on forever. It's like, it's not those things. I can't really explain to you what it is, but it's not that. Because those aren't the things that matter then and there. And then he goes on and says, well, now about the dead rising. In other words, the resurrection that you don't believe in. And this is where he gets at him. Have you, have you not read the book of Moses? Which is the only part of the scripture they believe is true? Of course we've read it. So he takes an example from what they believe to be authoritative. To believe the word of God. And he says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the, in the account of the bush... And if, if we know our Old Testament, he's talking about this time when Moses was, was in an encounter with God who was in a burning bush. Right? There were no chapters and verses and book names back then. It was the book of Moses. You know the story of the bush? And God said to Moses, I am. And we've seen that phrase before. I am. I have been. I always will be. I am who I am. He makes that statement. But then he goes on in... That present tense of, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And that present tense gives us the idea that there was still some relationship with those three men, those three patriarchs, those three founders of the faith that all the Sadducees would have elevated, right? These are the ones that God directed and saved and chose. And Jesus is saying, God is still relationally connected to them. It isn't a past thing that went away. It isn't, I was, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. Good guys. Too bad they're not with us anymore. He's saying, I am their God. I am the God, the, the covenant God, the covenant maker, the covenant keeper who promised this to the nation of Israel and it's still happening. He was not saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were we're all living the resurrection life because that hasn't taken place yet. See, the majority of, of Jewish people in that time believed in the resurrection, a, a day out there in the future, a final thing when people who are the people of God would live again. They, they, they believed that. But the Sadducees did not. And so this is a very unique argument and conversation with Jesus and this particular group of people. And he's saying, I am the God of these forefathers, of these patriarchs. And there's something about that relationship that is happening now in a spiritual sense. But someday it will be realized. And I know this is a, uh, it's actually a pretty complex passage. Trying to get in this argument he's having with the Sadducees and why it matters. Because what we're really talking about is, is they were doing what most of us do. We, we wonder what happens when we die. What happens to me when I die? And, and scripture talks about a couple of things. One, there's like the promise he, he gave to the, the thief that was on the cross next to him, right? Who, who, who believes something. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's, there's some sense of a, a being in the presence of God spiritually in, this, in heaven. But we're talking here when you talk about the resurrection. We're talking about what happens when Jesus returns. What's the ultimate thing that's the end? What's the, the ultimate life? In other words, we're not talking about life after death. We're talking about life after life after death. Make any sense at all? So there's life after death. What happens when I die? But then there's what's the glorious thing that happens ultimately when Jesus comes back. We're reminded of it in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when John, the apostle, sees and says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. 
Because the old heaven and old earth had passed away. The new one come and, and says, and I saw the new Jerusalem, the new city, the, the heavenly realm coming to earth. The, the new heavens, the new earth. And in your voice saying, behold, the dwelling place the new. There's, there's something amazing that you can't even comprehend. The, the, the dwelling place of God with his men. And, and it's a city. There are people. There are relationships. There's interaction. There was, there was also the garden and perfection. And it all, it all comes together in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the resurrection. That's life after life after death. And so Jesus is looking at the Sadducees and saying, first of all, you don't because in that, because of the way God talked to Moses about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I am and I always will be and I always have been and so is life. And there is a resurrection life to come. But, but you've missed out on it. You don't trust in the power of God to do those things. Because your vision of who God is and how he's at work and what the future holds and what today holds is limited to a really small box. And so all you can say is, if she's married to seven guys and there aren't children anyone, who's her husband in heaven? Who's her husband in the resurrection? You've missed the point. Now, if we were to go back and just read this passage again right now, like we did at the beginning, I think we would probably get to the get to the end, and instead of saying, huh, we go, hmm, hmm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, there are some things to ponder about that, those Sadducees. But, but, but how do we bring it in to us, to our life? What do we learn from this interaction? Because it's, it's interesting, this isn't our culture, this isn't our way of thinking. Well, I think one thing we grasp is that the uniqueness of this journey called life means we should pay careful attention to our one chance to walk with God. Now, now the title of this entitled sermon series in the book of Mark is, is called Great Beginnings because we've discovered through the whole book that it's, it's always about fresh starts. It starts at the beginning with uh, Mark saying, this is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the King. Right? That's, it, it's a beginning, it's a start. And we've seen throughout the book that God always lets us start anew. That we always have opportunities to, to learn something. And no matter how much we've seen, for instance, the disciples fail to grasp Jesus, he always says, let's try again. Let's, let's ask questions. Let's, let's learn together. Let's go down this path again and see what happens next. And, and we see that play over and over and over again. God is the God of second chances. God gives us a fresh start every day. His mercies are new every morning. It's an amazing thing. New starts, fresh starts, great beginnings every day. And yet, we have one life. And in that one life, that journey of life, we should pay careful attention to what it means to walk with God. In other words, we should live as we were created to live and be who we were created to be. We were created to be people in relationship and fellowship with the God of creation. He made us for communion with him and relationships with each other and, and management and dominion and care for the world around us and to be co-creators with him in the world that he's placed us in. We're, we're, we're called to be people that love people and exhibit the grace of Jesus and, and are people who are exemplified by the fruit of the Spirit. That's who we're called to be. That's who we're made to be. And this passage reminds us to pay attention to that. To live as we were created to live. Be who we were created to be. But as we've seen through the Sadducees, the, and they're not understanding the resurrection was absolutely central to their missing the point. 
The reality of the resurrection, Jesus claims it is absolutely factual. He's talked the last several chapters of, of his own resurrection. But, but now we're talking about this resurrection. When, when Jesus returns, the resurrection, the final resurrection, the, the people who restored to God. The reality of the resurrection means we should be careful what we believe and how we respond. The Sadducees got the understanding of the resurrection completely wrong. And their response was to the wrong conclusion. And so they, they missed out. They didn't understand there's more to life than what exists on this side of death. And it's beyond what we can even imagine. It's why I titled the message, Live Before You Die Future. It gives the present world meaning and full value. What God has made, he will remake. The people he has created will be created and transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. That's the, the life we are called instead of the cliche that too often happen, happens in our world, which is, you know, he's, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, right? That we've all heard that phrase. If we truly have a heavenly mindset or a, a life after life after death mindset, a resurrection mindset, that, that changes everything about how we live today. It has to play out in day-to-day life. It has to play out of being people who live lives of worship. In, in a time when we come together to gather or, or in the way we go about our day-to-day life, that's, that's worship and offering to God. That's what he's called us to be, not getting caught up in the little details of, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. This is who you need to be today. Like I said at the beginning, this is a, this is a challenging passage. Because we get into it and go, this just means nothing to me. I, I don't get it. I, I've grown up in the church. I believe in the resurrection. In fact, we've read 1 Corinthians 15. It basically talks about if we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and then in the one, the resurrection that follows for everyone, what we teach and believe is foolish. This is absolutely central to everything we are and everything we will be. And the reality of the resurrection means we should be careful what we believe and how we respond. As we said, the, the Sadducees got that whole concept wrong and, and that impacted their whole life. The whole sect of the Sadducees disappeared really quickly because it wasn't rooted in something that brought hope and challenge and life. It, it, it was about what doesn't exist. But but we believe absolutely wholeheartedly in the resurrection of Jesus, in the resurrection power of Jesus, which brings life to today. And we want to respond to that because that's who Jesus is. When we respond to that, it brings absolute fullness of life. Now, not not fully realized like it will be someday, but, but it brings hope for today and life for today and purpose for today and a reason for living for today. We need to hold on to both. Hold in this hand who, what it means to follow Jesus now and hold in this hand what is to come. We don't know the details, but it's beyond what we can imagine. And that's a really good thing. If life after, life after death, if the new heavens and the new earth were something that I could imagine, what a disappointment. 
But God promised something so much more, so much greater, that even the most profound relationships that we can know in this life, like a marriage. Lord, I've been married 34 years. We've, we've been going out together for 37 years. That's a, that's a long time. I know her better than anyone else ever. She knows me better than anyone else ever. A marriage is not a perfect relationship, but it was supposed to be a place where we practice holiness. And we practice unconditional love. And we practice forgiveness. And we practice confession. And we practice emboldening and encouraging and lifting each other up. And we get it wrong all the time. But, but that's the promise. And, and that's something that we look at and say that in its ideal sense is the most amazing relationship I can imagine. And Jesus in this passage is saying that is nothing compared to what it will be. Live today building those relationships to make them the most amazing things they can be in your life. Your interaction with people, the way you work, the way you live, the way you learn, the way you think, the way you express joy, the way you express sadness. Make that be the most amazing thing you can possibly do now. Why? Because that's pointing the way towards something even greater. Live that way. In the Lord's Prayer, right? It said, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this, this hope of transformation now, but it will never be realized in its fullness. But we still strive for it. This passage actually should bring incredible joy. Because it's talking about the resurrection. It is our hope for then, and it's our hope and our confidence today. And too often this passage has been used as, what do we learn from this? That you won't be married in heaven. That's not what it's about. In fact, we don't even know about procreation. It's not about economic perfect. They'll, I believe there'll be work. Why? Because God created work because it's good. But, but we'll love it. There'll, there'll be all kinds of things that are cultural goods that, that God has played out now, but they will be transformed into reality that we can't imagine. It's an amazing way to think about life now and then. And that's the challenge from a passage like this. I want to close our our message time today with a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever.